just as a brief review to catch us up to where we were, especially since it's been a couple of weeks and maybe some of you are guests and you haven't been here with us, we're in a section of Galatians chapter 1 and 2 where Paul is defending the authority of his gospel. His authority to speak and to preach and what he was preaching had apparently been questioned by these false teachers. And as a result, Paul is writing to defend the authority of his gospel. And so chapters 1 and chapters 2, Paul, uh, the bulk of those chapters is kind of an autobiographical section where Paul is talking about what has taken place in his life. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. And the heading of this section, the one main point, if you want to underline it, highlight it in your Bible, the point of all of these verses comes from chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul says, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, period. That's the heading of everything that takes place. Everything that Paul says from that verse forward is intended to make that point clear. And so what we saw in that uh, sermon that we did a couple of weeks ago when we studied those verses is we saw that part of Paul's claim and his defense that this is not man's gospel is the fact that his gospel, the message that he communicate, did not originate with him. It did not come from man. Instead, it came to him by a direct revelation from God of Jesus Christ. This is a message that came to Paul from God. And as a result, that power of that gospel was displayed in the transformation that took place in Paul's life. Such that Paul says that he was so radically transformed that everyone who was at one time scared of him is now praising God because this one who wanted to destroy the church is now preaching the very message he tried to destroy. And so the origin of Paul's gospel was not from any man. We, it seems to me be that those who are, have infiltrated the Galatian church and are these false teachers, the claim seems to be that the gospel originated with the church and the twelve apostles. And their claim is that Paul has somehow altered that gospel message. What Paul is writing is to correct that, to say the origination of the gospel is actually God. And now in these verses, he says, it originated with God and it was not altered by man. And so when you take verses 11 through the end of, of uh, verse 10 in chapter 2, it's kind of all one section that makes one point. This is not man's gospel. Instead, it originated from God and it was not altered and must not be altered by any man. And so we see in these verses what's going on as Paul goes, this charge that the gospel had originated with the church but altered by Paul. Paul responds that that's not in fact the case. And so he gives this autobiographical section that we saw where his life was transformed and now he moves on in the story of his life. That 14 years after potentially his conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem. Why did he go to Jerusalem? It's important that we understand why he went to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, according to verse 2, because of a revelation. He did not come to Jerusalem because the apostles called him. He did not come to Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church invited him. He's not under the authority of someone calling him to them. Instead, he's under God's authority who sent him. That's why he went. What happened when he got there? He met privately with those that were perceived to be pillars of the church. Peter, Cephas, he refers to him by both names in these verses. 
John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John as well as the Revelation, and then James. If you're familiar with your New Testament, there are three Jameses in the New Testament. Two were among the twelve, James the son of Alphaeus and James the son of Zebedee. This James is neither one of those. Instead, this James is most likely the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, who became the chief elder, the senior pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. And he was an authority. And so Paul gets an opportunity to privately meet with these individuals, and he begins to share with them the content, the message of the gospel that he proclaimed. Why would Paul feel the need to do this? He says because he doesn't want to find out that he has run a course in vain. Now, we have to be clear that Paul is not afraid that these men have some authority to change the content of his gospel. He's just said back in chapter 1 that if anybody ever shows up, whether it be an angel or even if it's me, who comes to you and says, hey, listen, I got this a little bit wrong. The gospel needs to have this added to it or this taken away from it. He says, if I show up and say that, curse me. If an angel shows up and says that, curse him. If anyone shows up and says and presents to you a message different than the one that I originally gave to you, let them be damned, is actually the language that he uses. So he's not afraid that the apostles are somehow going to tweak his gospel. Instead, what he's concerned about is if the Jerusalem church has embraced a different gospel, then his church planting efforts are threatened. And they're going to begin sending a contra-message, and he is going up against the, really the most powerful Christian entity and institution at the time. And so he wants to make sure that there's not going to be a conflict, and guess what? There's not. Because he presents to them the content of his gospel, and they add nothing to him. The problem, however, was that there were certain false brothers. He calls them false believers, not Christians who have snuck in, infiltrated this meeting so that they can spy out the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, verse 4, so that purpose they might bring us into slavery. That's pretty harsh and hard language. And it's a theme that Paul is going to develop later as we move through the book of Galatians. But he talks about this notion of the true gospel results in freedom and a false gospel results in slavery. Slavery to a system, to a rules, to behaviors, to certain things. And so Paul is not, he does not yield to them even for a moment. Now what these individuals are arguing is that Gentile believers, because remember, Christianity comes from a Jewish background. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so there was this movement in the early church that says if you really want to be a part of Christianity, you have to first be a part of the community that Christianity was birthed out of. You must be a Jew before you can be a Christian. Or if you want to be a Christian, you must follow all of the Jewish cultural, religious, covenantal rituals and laws. Paul says that is a false gospel in slavery. The true gospel is a gospel of grace and freedom. Circumcision was a big deal. Circumcision, if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, circumcision was the physical marker and reminder that the people of God were in a covenant relationship with God and belonged to him. 
Circumcision, just to try to keep it as clean as I can, is, is the removal of the foreskin from young boys. Circumcision was performed only on boys, and it was a reminder. Every single time that they went to, um, let's see, how do I say this? Every single time that they wanted to, to father the next generation, there was a physical reminder in front of them that they belonged to God and the next generation did as well. But not only that, it was, steep, it was deeply ingrained in their religious heritage, their, their identity as a covenant community of God, but it also became a nationalistic symbol for them as well because if you understand the history of what took place, In the 300 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the kings who came and conquered Jerusalem and conquered Israel, they had a really clear indication of who were Jewish men and who weren't. And so the sign of circumcision became a death sentence for any Jewish man. And so because of that, it became this very nationalistic symbol that we are Jewish men. And we are proud of it. And so it was inherently deeply rooted in who they were as a nation, but also who they were as a covenant people of God. So it is an important issue to them. But what Paul says is that to submit to that is to move to slavery. And it is to move away from the true gospel. So what happened, Paul presents his content of his gospel, and here is Titus, who is a Gentile, who is an uncircumcised man, and he's standing them there and having this conversation with James and Peter and John, the pillars of the Jerusalem church, and guess what? They don't require Titus to be circumcised. Beyond that, as Paul explains, his gospel of grace, they add nothing to it, which is only a further sign that this originated with God because Paul did not get trained by these men. Paul did not travel with Jesus. Instead, Paul had come to understand the gospel completely independent of them. And when they held them out, two separate traditions, if you will, and they're identical in every detail, That's something that only God can do and shows that it's not shaped by any one man or any group of men or any one cultural representation. Instead, the gospel is something that is separate from man and belongs to God. And it cannot and must not be altered by man. That's the power of the gospel. It's not your gospel. It's not my gospel. It's not owned by any denomination or any individual church. The gospel belongs to God. And it's independent of us. And therefore, it is independent of my articulation of it. As we're talking about spreading the gospel in the world, there's so many that are afraid that I don't know how to answer all of the questions, and so I don't know that my life lives up. I don't all of these other things, and we allow fear to paralyze us and keep us silent when we're supposed to speak the gospel. Guess what? The gospel's not dependent upon you. It doesn't belong to you. I tell the staff all the time, there are Sundays that I stand up here, and I think that I've knocked this thing out of the park, and they go, hey, it's all right. And then there are Sundays that I get up here and I feel like I cannot get a thought together and my notes are gone and I've lost my place in this and that and the other. And they come out and they go, and other people, you, you church members and family, you'll come to me and say, that was the best sermon that I've heard in, in months. And I feel like a failure. Because the truth of the gospel is not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon you, our abilities to do any of that. It belongs to God. It's God's to guard. It's God's to work through. It's God's to empower. 
But nevertheless, as we look at those verses, okay, that's what happened, and that's what Paul is communicating. It belongs to God. It's not altered by man. It's God's to do it. So then what does this mean for you and for me? So out of this passage of Scripture, I believe that there are three touch points of personal application for you and for me and for our church family. Number one, we must guard the gospel. Verse 5, Paul says that there are these false brothers secretly brought in to slip uh, out to spy our freedom. He said, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And then he gives the reason that he didn't. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If we have any responsibility as individual believers in Jesus Christ and collectively as a church, we must, like Paul, know the gospel, guard the gospel, preserve it for the next generation. To give away what was given to us, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, if you look in the book of Jude. We have the responsibility to know the gospel and to preserve the gospel. The basis of their conversation and the acceptance of Paul into the fellowship of the Jerusalem church, what these pillars accepted in Paul was not his ministry, was not the numbers, was not his discipleship pattern. It was the content of the gospel, period. That was the topic of conversation. When Paul meets privately with them, he lays before them the content of the gospel that he preached. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he goes on then to articulate the content of the gospel that he preached, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and he goes on to list others who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. The content of the gospel is what is of first importance. The content of the gospel is what unites us. The content of the gospel is what we must guard. That is what is of first importance. And we have a responsibility, just as Paul did, to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, no matter what it is that changes around us. And we must know the gospel well enough in our own hearts, in our own lives, to first recognize in my heart the way that I am turning away from the gospel to something that is less than the gospel. And then secondly, after I have understood the gospel in my heart and held firm to the truth of the gospel in my personal life, then guard against those outside of me, outside of the church, who are preaching a false gospel. There's a brand new thing that is just all over the internet. It's these discernment ministries. I don't know if you've seen them. They don't exist in Scripture. But it's these guys with blogs that are real quick to take sound bites out of sermons, and they will rip it to shreds, claiming people are heretics left and right with no indication that they have any concern of that pastor's long-term ministry and what he has taught. But instead, they are guarding the gospel. In reality, they're not shepherds, they're sheepdogs out to attack anybody and everybody that they deem to preach something less than the gospel. But the truth of the matter is, we are called first and foremost to know the gospel for ourselves, to feast it on the gospel, to live in the power of the gospel personally. Then corporately, we are to know the gospel and live according to the gospel corporately. Then we can judge those that are outside, because the truth of the matter is, 
the gospel's objective. It has certain truth claims and points that either are or aren't true. There is a base minimum of what needs to be communicated in order to communicate the gospel. And where something is added to it or left out, we're called to guard that and speak against it. So we must guard the truth of the gospel for ourselves, for our community, for the good of the world, but also for the next generation. But not only must we guard the truth of the gospel, we must guard the integrity of the fellowship. If you look in verse 9, you see that the end result of all of this was that these pillars gave to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship. They saw the truth of Paul's gospel preserved, they added nothing to it, and then they extended the right hand of fellowship. Because of the truth of, and, the, and the, the, the validity of the content of Paul's message, they embraced Paul. What was it that was the, the basis of their accepting him into their fellowship? It was the content of the gospel. Now, as we guard the gospel, we must understand that the gospel is the core. It defines what is or is, who is or is not in the, the body of Christ, in the family of God. But we must be careful to make sure that we don't take things that are secondary or even tertiary, third level, away from the gospel and elevate them to the gospel level. We have to know what is true, and we have to be guarded against anything that would divide us. And we have to be willing to extend love and charity to those that we may disagree with on matters that are not of first importance, gospel importance. Paul, even in a couple of places, indicates that there is disagreement and room for disagreement within the early church. Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. There was clearly some kind of disagreement. Paul trusted in God and the power of the Holy Spirit to correct any misgivings. And so the question is, as we think about what it is that unites us and divides us and we guard the gospel, is there a practical way that you and I can think through what it is that defines the fellowship and how we protect and guard the integrity of the fellowship of believers? Several years ago, Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote an article advocating a notion that he, he uh, an illustration, kind of a tie-in, that he called the need for theological triage. If you go to the emergency room and you walk in and you tell them that you have an issue, they are going to send you to triage. Triage is there to identify what are the most serious medical issues that need to be addressed right now. If I walk in and I've got a broken pinky... And somebody walks in right behind me and says, I have chest pains and my heart rate is through the roof. Guess who's going to be triaged into immediate care? Not my broken pinky. It doesn't matter that I was there first. The person behind me has a life-threatening situation. They need to be taken care of now. And so there is a need within the church for us to understand that there are levels of our discussion and understanding of theological truths. Maybe you've heard the old phrase, and I don't know who originated it, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty or freedom, and in all things charity. The best way that I can explain this and understand this, as we understand most important issues, the essentials, the non-essentials, and then the interpretation is to think in three levels. The first level, uh, and the way that I interpret this most easily, is to ask the question, can you and I go into the streets and tell the same gospel story? Can you and I knock on doors and we're telling the same story? 
If we're knocking on doors and we're talking about the real the, the identity of the same Jesus, the same God, the same gospel, then we're telling the same story and we're in unity. We're in the family of God. But if you and I are knocking door to door and you are telling the people that are there that Jesus is not in fact God incarnated, we got a problem. Because you're not talking about the same Jesus. If we're having a disagreement on what is and isn't sin that you need to repent of and clear teaching of Scripture, guess what? We're talking about a different gospel. If we talk about Jesus, that miracles didn't happen, then we can't talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're telling a different gospel. Those are important issues. We must be clear on what is the content of the gospel. That determines, are we even in the same family? So I pray for them, and I'm grateful for them, but our Mormon brothers, Jehovah's Witness brothers and sisters, I can't even call them brothers of our friends, who articulate that Jesus Christ is not actually the incarnate second person of the Trinity, God come for you and for me, are preaching something other than the gospel. Second-tier issues are we can go door-to-door, or we can go into the streets, and we can tell the same story, but we cannot covenant together to form a local church body. The most significant one of those is being the form of baptism. I can go door-to-door witnessing with some of my Presbyterian brothers all day long, but guess what? If we're going to plan a church together, they're going to have to either stop baptizing babies or I'm going to have to start. That's a second-tier theological issue. We're in the same family, but we can't be in the same church. You understand that? Second-tier issue. Third-tier issues are any other difference in our faithful interpretation of passages of Scripture or certain theological truths or truth claims. Probably one of the most significant is the, t- is the question of the timing of the rapture of the church. There are at least s- seven different, what I would say, uh, are valid or, or acceptable interpretations of the timing of the rapture. And based on our firmly held attempts to understand the plain teaching of Scripture, that's one of those things that we must hold with open hands. The question of Calvinism versus Arminianism, I would put in this particular category. That we can preach the same gospel, but we have a different understanding of God's role in that. Many different things. But those are different levels of theological triage. And we must hold firmly to those things that are essential to the gospel, We must hold with freedom the things that are different, and we must be charitable for everyone who holds a different personal theological position in some of those secondary or tertiary issues. So we must guard our unity. Be careful that we don't hold firm to something that creates barriers and divisions within the true family of God. And we must embrace in fellowship, those who are true believers in Jesus Christ, just as the apostles did with Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Lastly, really quickly, we must not only guard the integrity of the fellowship and guard uh, the, um, the, the power or the, uh, the truth of the gospel, we must also guard the nature of our ministry. I think verse 10 is particularly important for us in the world that we live in today, that in that final command, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are really truly recipients of God's compassion, if we are really transformed by the truth of the gospel, if we are truly the recipients of God's love, we must become the conduits of God's love into the world around us. We must be people as those who are spiritually poor and needy, who have now been adopted into the family of God such that we can live as sons and daughters of God in this world, heirs to the throne of the universe, 
How dare we then be people who are stingy and unconcerned and and incompassionate to those who are hurting and who are in need and who are poor and who are broken around us? The greatest outpouring and the truth of the, the presence of God's love in a person's life is the love that they then pour out. So we talked about and, and sang about walk humbly and that love is the outpouring. God is love. God has first loved us, therefore we love him in return and we now are empowered by his presence in our lives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live in love with him and love those that are around us. We must be a people who are defined by compassion and we must be ready to help those that are around us no matter their condition, the poor and the needy. Because the truth of the matter is, when we talk about building barriers, Christian ministry is not comfortable and it's not safe. When we step into those difficult places, go to those difficult neighborhoods, speak to those difficult people, That's uncomfortable, and it's difficult. But if we truly understand the love and the gospel that has been given to us, we must then, can only then, be compelled to go in the power of that gospel to give it away. No matter the cost to our comfort or even to our personal safety, God never promises that we'll be safe. God only calls us and promises to go with us regardless of what happens. And so we are to remember those who, like us, are poor and needy and not hold ourselves back from it. So we've seen in this passage of Scripture that we all have that tendency to protect ourselves, to value our own comfort and our own safety. And we do that, and when we do that, we tend to build those barriers of belief and behavior around the gospel. And I would tell you, brothers and sisters, you don't do this. I don't do this most often out of a malicious intention to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just that natural sinful tendency in every single one of us to create communities where I feel comfortable and safe. But oftentimes, those communities where we feel comfortable and we feel safe are defined by certain things, and we begin holding on to firmly those things that protect our comfort and our safety and that are not essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've given some clear examples, whether it be certain theological truths and traditions, whether it be certain ethical implications in the way that we should live or should vote, the behavior, morals, all that other kind of stuff. But maybe you're saying, you know what, I don't agree with that billboard that you said you saw on the side of the road. I don't agree with that pastor that you said, I'm good, I'm golden. Well, I would ask you to prayerfully ask this question of yourselves. In what ways do you tend to prioritize your own physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, etc., etc., comfort and safety? Where's the evidence of diversity and discomfort even in your life, in our church gathering? Or are we busy building a community that's homogenous and looks a whole lot like me because that's really where I'm comfortable? Or are we considering the poor and the needy that are around us and taking to them the, pow- the gospel that has the power to transform lives, to give it away. The answer that you and I need when we find that we are holding on to things that are less than the gospel, when we're adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel, is the gospel itself. 
We need moments like this when we're reminded of the the truth and the purity of the real message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is God-originated, God-empowered, God-protected gospel for you and for me first. Every moment of every day to wake up in the reminder and the reality that I am transformed and changed, amen? And that I am a son or a daughter of God right here, right now because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Yet not I, but Christ through me and in me. Not because of a record that I keep or things that I do or the people that I hang out with, but exclusively because God has set his love on me and rescued me, apart from any effort of my own. And when I remember that and hold firm to that and reject anything that is less than or more than that, that has the ability to transform my life. That has the ability to transform the lives of others. That is the life that God calls you to and me to. And so I'd invite you now, wherever you are, take a moment. Bow your heads and close your eyes and go before the Lord. And prayerfully ask, God, in what ways am I building barriers in my life around the gospel of Jesus Christ that keep people from me or from you? And allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart and into your life and confess those and repent of them and trust in Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to cleanse you, to wash you, to empower you, to change you. I'll come back and close this in prayer in a moment.